Welcome to episode 15 of the Strength Ratio Podcast. I'm Zach Greenwald here with a, a very special guest. And if you've been listening to our podcast at all, you'll know that a major theme is concurrent training. Our strength athletes get a healthy dose of cardio and vice versa. Our cardio athletes get a healthy dose of strength training. Uh, we'll dive into this a little bit more today. This is not the constantly varied high intensity dose of CrossFit. It is different. It is uh, structured differently for sure. But we're going to dive in today uh, with our guest in terms of the benefits as it pertains to longevity, fatigue management, and minimizing risk of injury, as well as performance for a, or advocating for a concurrent training model. And while we've been advocating for a concurrent training model and have had experience with it, why not bring on someone who's had far much more experience with athletes ranging from military to powerlifters to bodybuilders and beyond and hear what he has to say. So it's my great honor to welcome Alex Viata to the show. Alex, welcome. Thank you very much. Really happy to be on. So Alex, I just want to kick it off by asking you in your words, what makes for, as you've coined it, a hybrid athlete? And eventually we'll get into the evolution, but what is a hybrid athlete to you? You know, it's funny you mentioned the evolution because I think the definition has changed since I started out. The original hybrid athlete concept was the idea of an athlete who excels in two different unrelated dimensions of athleticism. Uh, that was the original proposal, the original idea. We can have strength athletes who get good at endurance work and endurance athletes who get good at strength work. But, and I don't want to preempt the next section, but looking at what hybrid athletes have become, we found that the concept becomes applicable even to specialists and it makes them better specialists. So <laughs> what used to be our idea of two different disciplines that you can excel in that are unrelated has effectively just become our new model for a hybrid athlete is one who trains different dimensions in pursuit of either single or multiple athletic goals. And, and it's funny that you mentioned that, and, and, and we'll share our own experiences as well, but both our elite athletes and our athletes that we would consider to be uh, are in our general population who have nine to five jobs, who aren't competing on a national level, we we train them quite similarly. Of course, uh, their respective loading and frequencies might look different, but but the philosophies are the same, and, and we've noticed something similar as well. Um, the next question, Alex, I have for you pertains to maybe your own experience with how you arrived at training with this model. We mentioned that we're going to talk about training longevity and training interest and injury reduction. That's where we'll spend a good chunk of time here. But before we get into the evolution of where it's gone since the release of the book in 2014, how have you gotten to this spot? Well, originally what got me into you know, hybrid athletics in general was uh, simply feeling out of shape. Uh, that was a big issue for me when I did purely strength training. And I think there was a realization after, after several years, uh, quite a number of years, in fact, of being a specialist, that I, I was having, I was hitting certain limitations in my training. I was feeling terribly out of shape in a lot of ways, in, in ways I hadn't been uh, when I played multiple sports, like back in high school, for example. 
And what got me into the idea was simply not wanting to have massive holes in my fitness, not wanting to feel like in some regards I'm a great athlete and in other regards, you know, a, a 12-year-old kid can beat me in a, in a 10K. <laughs> and, um, you know, moving, moving through the personal evolution there and at first taking on some of the endurance work kind of as a novelty in a way to fill in gaps. And then as it moved on, realizing that the endurance work had actually increased my both my mental and physical durability significantly. Um, you know, I, I think that's kind of what's led me to where I am now, where it's, you know, personally, it's, it's almost more of a, a way of life and, and being able to take on any sort of challenge I'm interested in and, and pursue it wholeheartedly without having to you know, take a massive redirection. And, you know, we've had a, a client, a newer client who, when we mentioned that we'd be uh, having you on the show, he said, you know, I once saw a picture of Alex. And for those who haven't seen Alex, he does not look like your typical biker though of the athletes that you're creating this is becoming less of an anomaly um he said this is what i want to look like Uh, and and the idea is that we we can perhaps more than we had previously thought have the best of both worlds or maybe not the best if we had only trained them concurrently though even that's up for debate now uh but we can have both and i think this is very important to bring to light um and in my own training as well, I, I just noticed I was although against my parents' recommendation to play multiple sports. My sport was baseball, mm-hmm. and I committed wholeheartedly to that before getting horribly burnt out. Mm-hmm. And after baseball, it was weightlifting and weightlifting only, snatch, clean and jerk squats and pulls, and that was it. And the lack of variety and the lack of uh, mixing things up for the sake of enjoyment or fun or any type of preparatory phases or change, which was totally non-existent, just ran me into the ground. Um, So perhaps as as we enter into this evolution of the hybrid athlete in your mind, how has the evolution occurred in the, in, in the vein of training longevity and enjoyment? You know, if at all, you know, it, it, it absolutely has. And I think one of the interesting things is when we started developing the concept and we started working with more and more athletes, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of got into this whole thing where we said, well, look, now we're finding tangential benefits. We're finding that improved cardiovascular capacity itself actually helps strength athletes. So, you know, what's what's going on here? And we were even finding with some of our strength athletes that when, you know, they would they would have been competing for multiple years and suddenly we have them running or biking or whatever else. And they say, well, you know what? I'm really enjoying this. I, you know, I want to do a triathlon or something. And this is somebody who's been a, you know, weightlifter or powerlifter for years. And we said, well, okay, this is <clears throat> one or two cases here would be interesting, but this is becoming an ongoing trend. And I think, interestingly enough, I, I almost get the sense that we just kind of stumbled backwards into something that's been going on for decades, which is the idea of kind of a general physical preparedness offseason. I mean, you look at uh, some you know Olympic athletes who after their after a competition year will take six months off and do something else, you know yeah. or, you know Russian Soviet periodization go play basketball for six months do something different. Um, there are so many benefits to that, and I think utilizing different sports and different dimensions of athleticism not just to support the main sport but as as different avenues for a little bit of competitiveness to 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 go off on in in areas where an individual, even an experienced athlete, can suddenly make, you know, find that they can have renewed astronomical progression again. Uh, 
you know, and, and mandating that our athletes, even the specialists, do some degree of, of endurance activity and even set slightly competitive goals in it has really mm-hmm. made a lot of these athletes, it's given them kind of a renewed look at training, a little bit of the reminder of why they train and why they compete in the first place. Yeah, and we've we've noticed that as well, and, and I think that uh, time away does a few extra things to it helps the mind restore from the psychological stressors, especially if this is post-competition. And it just can hopefully when the athlete return to the sport, make them all the more grateful and, and, and help them almost return to their roots in a sense as for why they started the sport in the first place. And I think that is what leads to burnout in a lot of athletes is just that the, the repetition of it without these, uh, preparatory phases of training without these deloads, without these times off can really take its yeah. toll. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, and when you've been doing something for so long, it absolutely is a way of life. You know, and I think a lot of athletes, whatever level they're at, they get into it because they love it or because they have some aptitude to it. And, you know, for any, any passion you have, any sort of, you know, grand lifelong pursuit, there are always going to be moments when it's drudgery. There are always going to be moments when you feel, almost obligated to put in the training when you don't want to, because the outcome is important to you. Yeah. But you know, if we can, we, cause we don't, we don't have to defray that. We don't have to diffuse it. We're not saying, Oh, anytime it gets hard, go do something else. But there is a little bit of that. You know what, if you are, if you're burning out, if you're burning out mentally, if you're burning out physically, this is a good opportunity to pursue something different. That's actually, as we found has benefits to your primary sport. You may go back to your primary sport and find that your athletic profile has changed in a positive way. And because of it, you're able to make progress at a level where you didn't necessarily believe you could. Yeah. And and it's almost as though our understandings of the carryover from Mm -hmm. the strength adaptations to cardio and cardio to strength are not merely maintenance anymore. Uh, I think even just a few years ago, we, we had mentioned it only in the breadth of maintenance. Whereas now if we look at things such as like tendon resiliency for, for runners, uh, if we involve strength training or for our strength athletes, if we look at changes in body composition or just ability to put together longer, more high quality reps per set and sets per session per uh, mesocycle exactly. they're improvements they're not just maintenance uh, carryovers it's fascinating so alex for our athletes we have and i don't know if you're familiar with joe ken the strength coach of the carolina panthers and how he programs for his athletes um in the form of a tier system are you familiar with that a little bit i you know i haven't actually dug into it that much so we we have kind of taken and and his is less concurrent training, but he has this idea of tiers, basically that which is most structurally and neuromuscularly taxing is at the top, and based on what is structurally most neurolog- neurologically taxing, it uh, decreases in priority from levels one to three, and and that's something that we involve uh, in our athletes' daily programming and larger planning. Uh, so as to help monitor fatigue, because when we involve multiple fitness characteristics, we just have to pay exceptional attention to this type of fatigue. Uh, Now, we take on that tiered approach so as to organize things 
How do you see it in your mind? Is it more of a sets and reps? Is it more of a what is the dose response of this bout of exercise? I, I just love to hear more of your uh, evolutionarily uh, evolution on fatigue management and most recent thoughts. Uh, so when we talk about uh, a lot of the fatigue management that we do, um, you're you know absolutely in agreement with the tiered system. There it is we monitor each system, um, each system of the body, both separately and and together so when you talk about uh things that are challenging from a you know kind of a neuromuscular perspective or more of a neurological perspective um you talk about high skill activities or exercises or or movements that have a high potential they have a a steeper learning curve uh require significantly more uh, coordination and and mental focus to perform Uh, we do we put those and, and Almost rather than the top of the tier, we we organize things in terms of uh, in terms of training priority. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's take even just our basic microcycle development, and it starts out the beginning of the microcycle starts out with what you would consider these high tier activities: the explosive high skill work, the high intensity work. And we look at an athlete profile. We look at say their their training age, and we look at their training age and say these you know high high involvement high skill movements. As an athlete's training age improves, their tolerance for these movements increases somewhat, but the stickiness of any maladaptations also increases. So mm-hmm. for these athletes, when we design a microcycle, we have a proportionately higher amount of this, as you would say, high tier or high skill or high fatigue, you know, high fatigability work. But if they start to then fatigue, and if we see certain metrics start to drop, which we can talk about in a minute, we have to dramatically reduce that skill work. Yeah. As the microcycle continues, we have what we call kind of that mid-level, the more easily recoverable work. We talk about the work that is more specifically challenging to structural components of the body, uh, more challenging to, you know, the skeletal muscle itself, to joints, to connective tissue, um, connective tissue more along tendons, less so ligaments, uh, just a base of ease of recovery. And that for most athletes represents the majority of their work. Now, the recovery of that is largely fixed. Um, you know, the, the mental and neurological fatigability is very much affected by certain components outside of the gym. And then the, the bottom, which I'll talk about in a second, is also affected very much by things outside of the gym. That center core component remains relatively static for most of our athletes over the course of a microcycle or mesocycle. Mm. As, that, as that week, as that microcycle progresses to the end of the week, we then go into the work that is purely fatiguing to energy systems, but has considerably less cost uh, neurologically, physiologically, et cetera. And that would be a lot of the, the volume type work. Now, uh, an obligate endurance athlete has a tremendous ability to recover from the high volume work. They, their energy, uh, energy stores are, tend to be very high. Their uh, substrate utilization tends to be very efficient. They can recover glycogen quickly. Their aerobic systems are very well tuned. So athletes with a longer a longer training age or an older training age there can handle a tremendous amount of that work. So these, these three separate systems all have different fatigability, different recovery times based on the individual athlete. Mm-hmm. And we adjust those both in the micro cycle as kind of an ongoing management. And then in the meso cycle, that's also how we kind of construct each, uh, you know, each phase of the season and preseason, how long do they need to focus on each? What's the relative ratio of each as time goes on? And that makes a ton of sense to me. And, you know, a lot of our athletes in the beginning, a lot of athletes almost exclusively came to us to resolve aches and pains, um, though 
now we have a, a, a balance of both. And what fascinated me was that with our athletes who had injury, they were very skilled at pushing everything with equal intensity without a foundational level of biomechanics, like very, the basics, they just totally lacked it. So not only were they doing everything with high RPE, thinking that more was better, but just everything was was much more taxing structurally because their mechanics were faulty and they never took the time to create good patterns of skill. So they never really had those neurological adaptations that you could get with high skill activities that you need. And fortunately, we have had this uh, trust built with athletes who come to us to resolve these pains, which frankly have been resolved just through mitigating fatigue and controlling for these exact variables with wisely structured programming, no fancy modalities or anything like that. Um, We're not registered PTs or MDs or Kairos, but we have that trust built with them to where we can work ground up. And what I'm curious about for your athletes, Alex, is how do you take new athletes and reel them in or have them revisit what in your mind might be important to in terms of technique or skill acquisition? Uh, Is that a hard thing to create buy-on around or buy-in around, um, how do you approach that with with your athletes and with your team? You know, it, it really is because there, there are a lot of things that we do differently. Like, for example, the obligate inclusion of some degree of conditioning that they always, you know, tend to find a little distasteful at first. Yeah. You know, there's and also a lot of what we do with um, with skill development and just how how much we back off on on testing and high intensity work initially, and how much time we spend, you know, kind of deconstructing movement. Um, the, the preparatory phase is always the most difficult because in that preparatory phase, we are focusing so much on developing work capacity, general and sports specific work capacity. We are spending so much time in unlearning bad movements and relearning good movements, uh, with increasing frequency. But, you know, again, the frequency of, of new movement or movement improvement. Uh, has to be so low at first because the athlete simply does not have the fatigue resistance to be able to perform a perfect snatch you yeah. know, 20 times in a row over the course of the workout. They may fatigue after two or three and then fall back into bad habits. Um, we we do spend a tremendous amount of time um, even just looking at looking together with athletes at video, for example, and illustrating small changes and demonstrating to them how quickly they start to fall out of new patterns and basically reinforcing to them and not just saying, Hey, trust us, you know, you're, you're moving badly, but saying, look, you know, we let's show you, let's sit down with you and we can show you how quickly you yourself are falling back into your bad habits. And our objective here is to, is to get some kind of improvement. And I know you want to work hard. I know you feel like you can work harder and you can do this amount of volume, et cetera. But let us show you how we spend all this time trying to dial in your form, trying to dial in your biomechanics, trying to make you move well, and have a look at how quickly that pattern deteriorates so that your desire to push it is having you do three or four sets or three or four repetitions at high quality, but then you are practicing the movement back in your old patterns the next 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And... I think it's been most illustrated to them when we can actually hammer out what are those issues you're looking at, 
What are the ones that have caused problems? Why have they caused problems? And now let us show you with you sitting down how what you want to do right now and what you desperately want to do and what we're asking you not to do is just going to kind of set you back to square one every time. Yeah. And, and I think this applies for in-person coaching, mm-hmm. for remote coaching. It's that what sells on Instagram or, or Facebook are the big lifts, are the athletes yeah. with big, big names and accolades. But I, I, and, I, and that's easy to get sucked into. It, it's Because it, it, even as a spectator, it's fun. Yeah. I, just as for those listening, uh, maybe look instead for coaches who are focused around these core principles of mechanics uh, and movement quality more so than outcome for just sustainable long-term uh, training. Not to say that, like you said, the training will get harder. It's just that it needs to start off on the right foot. And I think when uh, about myself, because I gave an analogy recently, right? If I, I suck at golf, uh, I haven't put in the time to develop my skill and it'd be wrong to just, and I think most would agree, to put me on the hardest course in the world and expect me to perform without kind of allowing me to ever evaluate my mistakes and then go back. Because I could imagine I could maybe try my hand at it but if I just kept going playing the hardest courses in the world, I would never improve. And I think how my own training has differed is that when I started training in the gym, I was thrown on that uh, hardest course in the world, so to speak. But then very quickly having realized that living with chronic pain and chronic fatigue is no fun, I was forced to take a step back. So I think it's okay to recognize that you've gone over the deep end and that it's not too late to draw it back in, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you know, I always uh, you know, kind of liken it to, let's say you're an engineer building a bridge. And, you know, you, you feel that there's a time crunch to get this thing built. So you, you kind of put something together haphazardly and you drive a truck across and you think, ah, look, it held up. Yeah, it's creaking a little bit, but, you know, we, we can put more across it. And so you just open, you know, open the gates and you know, everything starts traveling across and everything looks great. And you see little strain points here, little structural issues here and there, but you say, you know what? The bridge is doing what I need it to do. Why would I bother closing that road again to fix it? And mm. everything works, and the bridge works great until it suddenly doesn't. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, nobody, nobody wants to sit back and say, look, let's close the road and let's you know, start, start from scratch and you know, put in better foundations and address all those structural weaknesses and We'll start by driving a car across it first and see how the bridge reacts. And if something, if anything looks wrong, why would I start driving heavier things across it? Because what went wrong with the light thing is going to look worse with the heavy thing. So you say, well, a a smart engineer who's building something to last for decades is going to say, well, let's make this as best we can. Let's make this as solid as we can. Let's keep testing it. Let's keep putting heavier stuff on it. But if we see a problem when things aren't heavy, we're, we're, if we see a problem with the light, once you open the floodgates and start really testing it, something's going to break eventually. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. For sure. And what's the point of that? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that sometimes we have to, because our, as athletes, you know, I, I've done that before myself, and I think it allows me to communicate that to my athletes clearer than had I not. Um, yeah. uh, but there are times when our athletes knowing that they're in preparatory phases, knowing that we're looking to monitor fatigue so as to allow for their long-term performance, they'll still want something. 
And sometimes what we'll write is either something in their wheelhouse, so to speak, where there is foundational mechanics or something that is just kind of low mechanically fatiguing uh, that won't uh, cause any extra fatigue to prevent them from putting in productive work their next session, but it kind of keeps them involved. Uh, Do you do something similar? Do you have other considerations just for keeping athlete psychology in those early preparatory phases? No, absolutely. And actually the Instagram story series I did, I think I touched on this a little bit, is that um, if an athlete has a movement, even in the preseason or preparatory phase, where they, they do have a high training age in it and have good mechanics and the level of adjustment we would need to give to them for that movement is relatively low, we allow them to push it. Mm. Uh, we allow them to push it to continue to establish strength, to continue to express strength, to continue to give them something they can feel like they are progressing in, or at the very least not decreasing it. Mm-hmm. So, for example, like, you know, take, take myself. If I'm in a preparatory phase, I can still always throw a good amount of weight on the bar and put together a decent sumo deadlift. Like, I can... You know, I can just throw weight at it and it's always going to look good. It's always going to feel good. And I'm always going to feel like, okay, I've had some heavy weight in my hands. Here's something I can progress on any time of year. Mm-hmm. And for our athletes, that's that's important. And it's important that, again, like you said, it's something that is – it's low physical cost. Their mechanics look good, so they're not exacerbating hip issues or whatever else. It's low mental psychological cost. Uh, they can just throw themselves into it. And um, exactly like you said, it, it gives them something – we would rather direct their attention towards that than trying to progress and put up big lifts in something where we are actively trying to fix, repair, or refresh their their skill and their movement patterns. Interesting. Yeah, very cool. And I think that just from also behind just an enjoyment perspective, let's say it is something pertaining to absolute strength for someone who performs primarily cardiovascular exercise or is or identifies as something as a runner or a cyclist, it, it, it keeps the skill alive and it prevents decay of that uh, fitness characteristic too. Uh, I think that's really good. Um, in this the kind of talk of the evolution of the hybrid athlete or just the, the evolution of, of the, the business and the brand, have you noticed or changed your perspectives on any particular type of athlete that you work with, whether that's a power lifter, a weightlifter, a crossfitter, uh, and have those changes of thought been based on how the sports have evolved, or has it just been based on working with more clients and gaining more experience? You know, there's there has been a, a noticeable change, but I think the majority of the changes come from finding that uh, you know strength and endurance are are enhance each other. And don't operate siloed, uh, which, you know, sounds so obvious. Well, yeah, obviously, you know, you you build a better athlete, you're going to have a better athlete, of course. But when we first started out, um, you know, we we, we felt there was more value in in skill acquisition in every activity. Um, Or to put this another way, we felt there was no reason that somebody can't run, you know, that this is a natural human movement. And, you know, if, if somebody can't, well, we just teach them how to run. And that's, you know, that's no big deal. Yeah. But as we've evolved, I think we've realized and we've had it driven home more and more that even cardiovascular activity is a skill. Running is a skill. Cycling is a skill. Rowing is a skill. And the, the consequences of poor movement patterns in those are equally as high, if not more so, than the consequences of poor movement pattern in, in, in any sort of lifting. I mean, you're just substituting the potentially hazardous stress of 
too much load on poor mechanics versus the stress of too much chronic, you know, too much chronic volume on poor mechanics. And I think the more time has gone on, the more we've started treating the skill acquisition phase of even the cardiovascular movements as more important. Um, we spend a lot more time teaching the components of a proper row, of proper cycling, of proper running, reinforcing mechanics, building up the run uh, much as we would build up a squat. Yep. And in, in doing this and in choosing modalities that are much more naturally comfortable for our athletes, uh, we've, you know, we, even if somebody's goal is to be a better runner, we spend a lot less time having them run and a lot more time having them do things around running. You know, it's a little bit like if somebody wants to, to get a better clean and jerk, do we just have them do clean and jerks over and over again? Or if they're relatively new to the sport, do we develop the, the components separately and together and build their squat and build their mechanics and build their overhead, build their shoulder stability and build everything else leading them up to that final goal rather than just saying, okay, here's a bar, get it over your head. Yeah. So that's, that's been a, a major, major shift. And understanding that this skill acquisition phase has its own level of, uh, of fatigue. And it, you know, if they're, if they're in off season or if they're in a high skill development phase for their lifting, we clearly want to minimize the amount of time we're spending on skill development in their, in their cardiovascular conditioning because it's simply too much. So we vary our secondary and tertiary modalities according to the training phase of their primary modality. And we do that significantly. It's interesting you mentioned the evolution with the technique involved in something that we, at least we, I mentioning myself, and, and it, it sounds like uh, for you guys as well, that maybe we thought as being just kind of natural uh, maybe not as it didn't require as much focus. Unfortunately, uh, uh, one of our, our colleagues' partners came back from Rio with a gold medal in, uh, the women's eight, uh, in row and, uh, rowing. And we've had the privilege of working with her and, and just getting coached up on her and just seeing the, the skill in erging and what exactly that looks like for where I can now, rather than thinking about how many calories am I accruing on the rower or how am I going to fit this in my session? I'll sometimes just hop on the erg and just get kind of involved in the rhythm of good technique throughout a session. And I won't even really pay attention to time. I, I will just try to treat it as a skill. Uh, I've seen you do that and talk about that with running similarly, having different goals uh, rather than attaining a certain distance or mileage, having a focus that sometimes involves skill. Or running economy. It, yeah, and, and there are so many benefits to that. I mean, the, the first benefit, of course, is improving your, your ability to perform a skill, improving movement quality reduces the discrete load of a given, you know, a, a given unit of volume um, for, that, for that activity. Like, say you want to get in 10 miles of running per week. If you improve your skill efficiency, you decrease the cost, uh, the recovery cost of those 10 miles. So. Yeah. You can achieve more with a less a lesser cost to the system, a lesser cost to the athlete. And the other thing is also it, it psychologically varies the stimulus. Um, you know, as you know, most most athletes are you know almost by definition there's a certain amount of competitiveness. They like to beat their old goals. They like to show continuing progress. If you tell an athlete, okay, I want you to go run three miles, they are going to probably try to run it faster each week. And if they don't, yeah. they're going to feel like, oh, I'm regressed. Yeah. So. If you give them technique goals, if you give them goals that have nothing to do with speed or nothing to do with pace, you, you give them something that they can focus on 
that reduces the physiological strain on the body and reduces the mental strain on the body. They're, they're focused on something like breathing. Um, having an athlete do a 35 minute conditioning set where you tell them, I just want you to focus on diaphragmatic breathing mm -hmm. and proper posture. It's going to be fantastic for them. It's going to be fantastic for their, I mean, for their breathing. It's going to be fantastic for their level of stress, which is going to go down. So there are going to be discrete benefits to that session that may even, that, that may even support or even assist with athlete recovery from high intensity work. Very cool. Yeah. Now along these lines of fatigue management, what else have you either improved upon in your knowledge or completely changed your thoughts on as it pertains to things outside the gym, uh, perhaps with hydration or uh, food intake, maybe uh, other ro recovery modalities as well? Um, well, there have been a couple. I mean, the, the largest overarching one is, of course, the focus on hydration and the focus on proper electrolyte balance and proper osmotic balance of anything you take in. Uh, post-workout has been extremely important to us. I think the more that we're finding, especially with any sort of, you know, as we now call you know, hybrid or I would say non-obligate endurance, actually, <laughs> is that their, their body size and the amount of energy and heat they can produce, the amount of metabolites they generate and everything else are outside of what is typically expected to be the norm. Mm. Um, when a lot of recovery hydration protocols, et cetera, developed for runners or endurance athletes, there's a certain athlete profile they're testing on, which is not quite the same that, uh, that you and I may be looking at with our athletes. Yeah. So, you know, realizing the amount of the amount of heat that can be generated and the amount of metabolites and the amount of water that can be lost by a hundred kilo runner uh, over the course of two hours in the heat is just staggering. And we've had to spend more and more time adjusting our recommendations on post-workout hydration and intra-workout hydration and uh, cooling methods and, you know, time of day that we have our activities, our athletes perform sessions. So that's become a major thing. Mm. Uh, we also do spend a lot of time now utilizing and utilizing endurance as active recovery from lifting and utilizing recovery as active, uh, utilizing lifting as active recovery from endurance. Um, if properly differentiated, a good long, slow endurance session in that zone two heart rate uh, with a focus on breathing, a focus on running economy, et cetera, you get a lot of benefits that could be considered active recovery from lifting. You get blood flow, you get breathing, you get, again, you get metabolite clearance, you get you get muscles working, but not being stressed in the same way as lifting. And we found that by incorporating these sessions, we've actually seen improvements in things like heart rate variability metrics mm. uh, from our athletes. In fact, one of our HRV recovery uh, metrics that we used for both weightlifters and for actually combat sport athletes, um, judo, jiu-jitsu, you know, mixed martial arts, anything, is a two-day recovery protocol that consists primarily of low-intensity cardio that actually improves their HRV readings faster than simple two days of rest would do. Now, mm -hmm. is HRV, you know, the be-all, end-all? Absolutely not. But it's an interesting proxy for overall readiness. And by showing that cardio, low-intensity cardio, if properly selected, properly applied, actually facilitates recovery faster than sitting on your butt on the couch, <laughs> for all, it's been pretty remarkable. Yeah. And we've actually observed something similar for those who have had chronic pain. And that is that when we can find positions and exercises and loads that do not increase pain and involve it 
perhaps mixed with intermittent bouts of erging or skiing or biking or walking, that they report just feeling better. Uh, and, and we recommend that if people do have, say, like tweaks or strains or sprains or however they are feeling it and want to define it, that it just seems to s- stimulate recovery so much better to move and do something than it is to do nothing. Uh, I think though our our like, common sense or maybe like instincts, I guess is a better word, would just be to shut down everything and not risk it again. Um, yeah. So really cool to hear you talk about just the recovery protocol with low intensity. Well, and it, it's funny too, because it also goes in the opposite direction. We'll have athletes who just finish a 50 mile ultra and they are typically laid up for three, four days, for example. Ah. If they're, if they're obligate ultra runners out of a 50 miler, they're just locking off. But, you know, for the, for the most part, you know, there's a, there's a significantly long recovery time, but relatively light lifting, uh, full range of motion, engaging a lot of muscles, you know, cause one of the, one of the biggest things in recovering from these sort of endurance events is that the, the body needs to stay mobile. You have a very high, almost aggravated, you know, kind of resting tonus and guarding around joints and tight muscles and cramping and a lot of other things that are preventing the body from really recovering and relaxing. When we find that even having an individual who just finished an ultra, we have them doing some light squats. Uh, what do we have them doing? We have them engaging and disengaging various muscle groups around the knees, around the hips and everything else. We have them you know, contracting, then relaxing their lower back and you know, the psoas group and you know, the hip flexors and everything by actively contracting and relaxing and contracting and relaxing and stretching and you know, loosening. A lot of these, a lot of these folks who otherwise would be barely able to get off the couch two days later are now walking around, and as a result, they're able to get back to their training faster. They they have a less pain, less discomfort after these events, and they recover faster when we reincorporate strength training sooner rather than later, especially after long races. Wow, that that's that's really cool, and I've heard you describe it, and I I uh, I'd never thought of it like this, but you know. We're, we're talking to athletes when they're laid up in bed. It's usually before they come to us fearful of doing any exercise because they're injured. Um, it's not just months or weeks of this bedridden time or outside of gym time where you're getting weaker. It's twice the amount of time because your competitive feel is getting better. Yeah, exactly. And when you mentioned that, I was like, wow, I had never, I, I, I I had never even thought of that. So when these thoughts creep into my mind where, you know, I I might have my weightlifter refining his skill, refining his skill while everyone else on social media is posting their PRs all year round, no deloads. And I I might, I might even get tempted, but then when they get injured, I'm reminded we're not gaining the two months that they're out. We're gaining four. Exactly. Exactly. Because the two months they're out, they're taking several steps back while you keep going. And that's, that's one of the hardest things to that's one of the hardest things to keep in mind because there are some people who won't get injured for two years or three years and everyone thinks, oh my gosh, look at them. They're you know, they're wrecking everyone. But I'm always I'm always a little I don't know, I you know, kind of raise an eyebrow at these people who seem to set PRs every single week. <laughs> How can there be any PRs left to set? You should be three times the world record by now with the, the pace that you're continuously oh, setting yeah. And you know, there's a there's a little bit of the old you know, people continuously setting records in unrelated movements and progressing for the sake of progress. Uh-huh. You know, one of the things that I always always tend to come back to is that 
you know, strength, uh, the weight lifted is an expression of strength applied properly to a barbell. Um, you can develop that strength without expressing it in the, in the, in the competition manner in many different ways. Mm. You can ex- express strength in a way that won't translate to moving the barbell the way you want to move it. So while your athletes are doing form work, while they're developing their strength, they're developing their skill, they're refining all these components, they may not be expressing it with a load on their back in the same way as the, you know, the weightlifter who's like, hey, I just squatted 300 kilos. Yeah. But at the end of the day, are they still progressing at the same rate with a lesser cost to their body? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it may take them a while to bring that all together. But the same token, the person who's out there absolutely smashing themselves week to week, like you said, what if they have to take two months off or worst case scenario, what if the expression of the strength constantly gets them to three weeks out from a meet and they are feeling absolutely shattered and they have to take the next three weeks off for the meet just to not feel like garbage? Yeah. I mean, I, I see this constantly. People saying, oh, well, you know, it's that phase of meat prep when I can't get out of the bed in the morning. And I'm thinking, well, that's, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> you know, that's that, that seems like it's really conducive to being able to go in and perform your sport movement with the highest possible readiness and being applied to it. Well, something, something, yeah, something that we that we focus on because as we're talking about these, and, and I, I to make it clear, the reason you do all of this work is to ultimately express it at its best form when it matters most. We're not saying we're never going to get there. We're just going to do it the right way at least in what we believe is, is a shared and consistent uh, opinion. Um, but to have, say, the weightlifter uh, perform their technique consistently, uh, they're not attached to load, right? So you, you have psychological challenges there. Uh, we might have them go to a meet for the psychological benefit. Because I might have a, a weightlifter um, have amazing training and get to big stage bright lights and they freak out or a crossfitter who goes to the open and they have great training and they just panic under the whole stress of it all. So, But having these uh, intermittent uh, check-ins in, in a competitive setting where we have these psychological like confrontations, so to speak, the, these qualitative goals around competition rather than, uh, or sorry, qualitative goals around competition rather than quantitative seems to be very helpful, especially in the athlete's early development. Do you do something similar with your endurance athletes where it's not as much about placement, it's about pacing um, and just getting them exposure? Yeah, yeah, no, we do, absolutely. Uh, a, lot, a lot of our athletes... A lot of our athletes have what we call kind of A, B, and C races that they do throughout the year. Because athletes will come to us and say, hey, I want to do eight races this year. I want to <laughs> do 10 races this year. And we, we look at them, we go, okay, well, <clears throat> you know, if you're going to peak for every single one of these, you're not going to spend any actual time training. Uh-huh. So we'll tell them, look, your A race, the, the one that really matters is in June. You've got another one that you signed up for because somebody told you it would be a good idea in April. Now, we're looking back at your races for last year. What was your biggest problem with your big race? Okay, you know, you're, you slowed down at mile 15 on the run and, you know, you didn't hydrate properly. Great. We are going to take that B race and we are going to use that as an opportunity to test out strategies to avoid the issues you had last year. Mm. So we're going to say your, your only objective 
for this entire triathlon you have coming up is to do a negative split on the run. That means, you know, start out slower, finish faster. That to us is the win. Everything else is fine. We're not working on that. Your definition of victory will be finishing strong on the run. And everything we do around development for that race is going to be, of course, we're going to work on the fundamentals. But we're going to focus on that one thing that's going to give them something to really focus on. It's going to address something that's been a problem for them in the past. And it's going to let them use the race as a way to achieve a victory that is not based on just wringing themselves out and setting an overall PR. And it's a little bit like you said. It's, it's all about developing the athlete's not just trying to, you know, develop a, a machine and have them you know, pushing until they break. And uh, we, so we do that quite a bit. And it's, it, it is, it's, it's about this, you know, kind of deconstruction and reconstruction of an athlete and exposing them to different kind of competitive or different tests that are actually going to continue to make them better. And I was, I was thinking that we could, and on talking about the higher performance things, but what we seem to be going into and what I'd love your, to just hear about as we're kind of seeming to go in this direction, are overarching goal setting principles and maybe like onboarding processes to get people on board with this, you know? Yeah. And- so so what, what does this look like when you have um, – do new athletes have – a handbook explaining this? Is this more up to the relationship that a coach develops with their, uh, uh, their athlete one-on-one? What is the, the goal? What is the intention of the goal setting? And because this is hard to do for the ego, I think, uh, though there are ways of kind of giving them those mini wins, so to speak, that we discussed earlier on, what is, uh, what is the business's overarching approach to that, that the goal setting in the early stages? Because in the early stages, what we like to do is we tell them we tell them what the big picture is. But one of the one of the things we do is we don't do eight week programs, we don't do twelve week programs, we don't do sixteen week programs because we are so much more process oriented than, than, than goal oriented, mm-hmm. and. That's obviously that can be a tough sell for athletes. They say, "Look, you know, I I want to I want to finish this Ironman. I want to finish, you know, the this seventy point three in under five hours." You go, "Well, no, we just need to worry about the process." They go, "No, I'm paying you because I want to finish under five hours." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and so we tell them, "Look, you know, that's that's our priority as well. We are not going to be able to get you to your goal without making you a better athlete. You're not coming to us." to run the race in under five hours. That's up to you. You're coming to us to make you the best athlete you can possibly be. Yes. Here are the areas you're strong. Here's what you've been riding to success in the past. We are looking at you and saying, great, you're strong in these areas. Our goal for you is to let you express your speed on race day. So trust us to pull out those components that I think are holding you back and let us improve those and you will improve the whole. Mm. So we break down a lot of their interim goal setting, not necessarily about expressing that top end where they're already good, but about making improvements in those areas where they know they traditionally struggle. Um, certain things in strategy, certain things in pacing, certain things in the late race, uh, you know, or, you know, for the strength athletes, same sort of thing. They say, look, you know, this is, this is what I want my total to be. This is, but this is where I keep breaking down. And we say, look, here are the issues. You are never going to be able to improve without addressing these primary issues. We know you're strong. We know you have, you know, good game day competition. We know you've got 
a strong lower back, but you know, your, you know, your, your knees are, you know, your knees are weak or your form is bad here, whatever else happens to be holding them back. We say, look, our objectives, the goals we are going to set are going to be about improving those things you've never bothered trying to improve before. Uh-huh. And that is why you are not a complete athlete right now is you are not focusing on improving those things you don't care about <laughs> by definition. <laughs> Let us set those goals. Mm. You are the one who's going to be lifting the weight. You are the one who's going to be out there on the course. You are the one who's going to be doing those things. Don't count on us to be behind you, pushing you. Count on us to be helping fill in those gaps that are not letting you be the athlete you want to be. Very cool. My my last question, because I, I want to be respectful of your time, is both a selfish one and I think one that can help the audience who's listening in better selecting their own coaches in the future. Uh, and that is, uh, so Alex's company is Complete Human Performance. We'll, of course, link below if, if you, you should know about them by now. But if not, we'll, we'll definitely have them in the show notes. Uh, but Alex, informing your team, because how, how big now is your, your staff? Well, at one point, I think we had 23 full-time coaches. And now we've actually broken it up a bit where we have a team of seven core coaches and then a group of larger coaches that we operate as a referral network. Okay. So given all that we've spoken about with process versus outcome, with goal setting, with skill acquisition, uh, I think sometimes people ask, well, why would you do remote coaching? It's so funny because I think if you deliver a quality product and that is your uh, ability to give back good feedback and guide the, the the process. It could be infinitely better than someone who is moderate, uh, who is standing right next to them in person. Um, but my, my question in the way that it is selfish is, how did you go about forming that team? Uh, and, and what qualities do these coaches share that help them communicate to these athletes these hard things that will ultimately be for their long-term health and sustainability, but in perhaps the beginning can be a challenge for athletes. I think the, the biggest common thread with the coaches that we have is, and I know this sounds so cliche, but there's a tremendous humility. And I think the, the willingness to listen to other coaches, it's, it's been interesting since putting together this, this team of coaches, we have people who've been ultra runners their entire life. We have people who've been strength athletes their entire life, powerlifters, uh, what have you, they all speak, uh, it, it, it's like everyone speaks the same training language with a different dialect. Uh. There are you know, common threads and common themes we find throughout training where being able to communicate effectively with an athlete means you need to speak their language or more accurately, you need to be able to speak their dialect. And understanding, understanding what an athlete is, is saying and writing down versus what they're actually feeling it's interesting because the coaches that we've worked with are all remote. Um, I almost never meet them in person before we hire them. Ah. Their ability to communicate what their interests are, their ability to ask the right questions, to, to essentially see into what I'm looking for and what I'm saying, to be able to read somebody through what they write and read between the lines and look at them on video and everything else. This is all so critical because we found in person, you can actually conceal significantly more than you can yes. if, if you know what to look for. Yes. 
And a lot of the coaches we work with are actually, they're, they're, they're effective in person, but they're also very effective at, at understanding tone at understanding when, when, when you take away the posturing and everything else, what are people actually like? Yep. You know, what, what are their notes like in, in their training log on a bad day? Mm-hmm. And, you know, look at, looking at those frustrations coming out and everything else with no, with no real life filter, with no having to put on a smiley face, looking at, at people's raw feedback when it, to an extent they think nobody is looking. Uh, I think a lot of our coaches, the common thread is they are very, very good at getting people to open up based on the almost, you know, personal yet impersonal uh, medium of, of the written word on the screen. Yes. And, you know, it's, it's it's funny because I I think the looking at some of the feedback that our clients give us on on the app that we use, it so much of it becomes so honest. Uh huh. And the the coaches that we have are so good at getting people to to write their thoughts and remove that filter for better or for worse, and they do that I think by being such good listeners by being able to hone in on what is that people what what makes them tick, you know what. What things in life get them frustrated? What things in life, you know, what what gets them to open up and avoiding the things that get them to shut down? So it's, it, I think more than anything else, that's it. Because, you know, programs are programs. Mm-hmm. You know, you can, you can design a million programs and each one of them is going to work for someone. But being able to get an athlete to be truly honest about what they're doing and what they're going through and how they're communicating and being able to then say, you know what? I've got my own conceit about what I think they should do and what I think they want, but I'm just going to listen to them. I, that has been the biggest common theme throughout our successful coaches. That's awesome. That's very cool. Have these uh, coaches sometimes been athletes in the past and then yeah. uh, risen to coaching roles? Yeah, quite a few of them have. Um, I mean, one of our, one of our ultra coaches, I mean, most of them actually started out as athletes and still compete. Um, you know, one of our coaches, uh, Nicodemus, for example, he read the, he ran the, uh, the Barkley marathon. I don't know if you saw that on, uh, Netflix, you know, that crazy. Yes, I actually did. Yeah. He's, he's the 13th guy of all time to finish it. Oh my God. So, but you know, it's, and, and that's, I think more the fact, regardless of his level of success or not, he's obviously a great runner. He shares a passion for the sport that I think comes through. And I think more important than you know, performance in, in their individual sport is the fact that all our coaches are passionate about what they do. And they're passionate about people who share the enjoyment of the sport. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes them so good. It's not that, you know, Nicodemus can, you know, run up a mountain faster than I can run down the same mountain, <laughs> which is really bothersome to me. But it's, it's the fact that he understands what the love for the sport is about. And he understands the frustrations and he understands the type of person who gets into ultra running and he knows what they enjoy about it. And he has an idea of what they don't. And that's, that's what makes our coaches effective. It's not the level that they've competed. It's the level at which they, they, they love the sport and they love the people who compete in the sport. Very cool. Very cool. So, you know, today we've, we've spoken about training longevity and all that, that entails. We've, we've spent some time with fatigue management and, and then on this, uh, not too tangential route towards towards goal setting. I, I think there's so much more to cover, and perhaps we could, whether it's in the form of Q and A or or another podcast down the road, address so much more that comes into this concurrent training, sustainable training, however you want to define it. But this discussion of keeping athletes uh, performing and staying healthy in the long term using 
or rather I should say not neglecting any one fitness characteristic. Cause I think like you mentioned, the, the, the terminology uh, is changing, right? It's, it's not as black and white as a cardio only strength only it's it, the interplay is, is so fine. Um, it really is. You know, I think it's it's funny when you just talk about the fact that the ATP creatine phosphate system relies on aerobic systems for recovery. Yeah. You go, oh, wait a minute, really? Yeah. And it's 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 just it's you know, energy is energy, and force is force, and it all it all goes together. And that's how we have to think about it. Oh yeah, I remember in school first learning, I was like, oh, so these systems one turns on, the other turns off. And the professor was, no, 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 think of it like a dimming of lights. Like yeah, one yeah. is, it is hardly one goes on and the other goes off. So uh, again, so much more that we could talk about, but in being respectful of your time, Alex, I think we'll put a pause here. And again, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it, Zach. Really appreciate it. All right. Uh, thanks for tuning in, guys. And stay tuned next week for episode 16 of the podcast.